Welcome to the church family that is lifting lives through living love, inspiring hope, filling with faith, and transforming our world. These recorded messages are made available so that you might have additional opportunities to stay connected with us and that you might learn and grow in your faith. God bless you as you hear the word today. And now, the message. Today's reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Some years ago, this was... I don't know, Nathan wasn't born yet. In fact, Jamelin was pregnant with Nathan. Margaret was, you know, two years old. And I was serving in my first church in Milroy, Indiana. And so around that time period, a tornado touched down very close to our uh, town, to our home. It, it actually touched down in Moscow, which was uh, uh, a town about five, six, seven miles uh, to the west of us. And it touched down at night, and I remember when it kind of passed through, I mean, it, it did damage. I mean, it, it, it ripped up an old, beautiful, historic uh, covered bridge, destroyed homes, barns, scattered debris through all the farmers' fields. We had to organize teams later to walk the fields and pull the debris out so the combine could go through. Like, I remember it very clearly. And, but when it happened, it was in the middle of the night, and, uh, or not middle of the night, it was kind of late evening. And, uh, I was home by myself with, with Margaret. And so I went and got Margaret out of her bed and went to a closet, you know, that, you know, kind of the interior space as close as I, you know, safe as I could get with Margaret. But Jamelin was driving home from Indianapolis. And in fact, uh, she was only a few miles west of where the tornado touched down when she got the alert that there was a tornado warning. And so she, you know, pulled over in a driveway of, uh, of a local farmer and knocked on their door and they let her in. She stayed in their home, waited out the storm. But after the storm, the tornado passed, the warning was lifted. Jamelin decided to drive the last, you know, 10 miles home. She was completely unaware that the tornado had touched down in between where she was and where our home was. And it was pitch black, like she could barely see anything. And so she was driving along, you know, the highway and there were, you know, trees down and limbs down and she started trying to weave her way through it. And, and then she got into a spot where she, she just felt blocked in and there were live wires okay, that had fallen down on either side of the car. And I remember I'm still, you know, with Margaret in the closet and I get this call on the cell phone from Jamelin who is freaking out because she has wedged herself into a position where she doesn't feel like she can go anywhere. She's not sure if she can back up. She knows she can't go forward. She can't get out of the car because she's afraid of these live wires. And she's just in complete panic mode. Now, when there's a storm, there are places you want to be, right? You want to be someplace solid, 
solid walls, not windows all around you, you know, firm, you know, solid roof to keep the rain away. If, if possible, you want to be down in a basement somewhere, right? Like below where the storm can hit you. And, and it's nice if there's some comfortable couches or places to sit. Like you want to be safe and comfortable. You do not want to be out in a car just a few miles from where the tornado passed through. You don't want to be uh, seven months pregnant as Jamelin was at the time. You don't want to be exposed or vulnerable. You don't want to be out on the sea in a small little fishing boat like the disciples were. It's the last place you want to be when a huge storm hits. But that's exactly where the disciples find themselves, exposed and vulnerable in the middle of a storm. There's a painting of this by Eugene Delacroix. I really like it. Uh, kind of go to the next slide. You can kind of see when the, when the storm hits, the disciples, now when, when, the, when, when it happened to Jamelin, when she kind of wedged herself in, she kind of got frozen. Like what happens when we're in the middle of the storm, when we feel exposed and vulnerable? One possibility is you freeze, which is kind of what Jamelin felt on that highway. The other opposite side of frozen is frenzy or you're just doing everything you can to survive. And I love this painting by Eugene Delacroix because it captures the frenzy that the disciples felt in that moment. They were doing everything they could. They were paddling like, you know, like for their lives. They were bailing water. They were flailing about. They were screaming. They were scrambling. They were doing everything they could to keep their, their boat afloat, right? Now, you may not know what it's like. I don't know what it's like to be out on a lake, in the middle of a storm. I've never had that experience, but I do know what a moment of panic feels like. And I bet every single one of us knows what a moment of panic feels like. And in those moments, we flail, we frenzy, right? But the thing is, despite all of that activity, even though we're doing everything we can to keep our boat afloat, so to speak, the truth is when we are in panic mode, we are not very productive, are we? Usually what we do is we succeed in stirring up all the other people around us and putting them in a frenzy. Sometimes we create more problems than we solve. So when we operate out of insecurity, we multiply problems rather than solving them. Every single one of us has done that at some point, right? But in contrast to the disciples... If we go back to that picture of Eugene Delacroix, in contrast to the disciples, in contrast to their frenzy and their fear, Jesus is a picture of calm. In fact, he is asleep. He must have been some kind of exhausted, right? Like to sleep while all this commotion, this storm is going on around them. He must have been some kind of exhausted. What's interesting to me is how the disciples interpret Jesus' resting because they interpret Jesus's resting as indifference to their plight. In Matthew's gospel, they wake up Jesus saying, save us, we're drowning, Lord. But I love the way Mark's gospel records it. Mark's gospel records that the disciples ask, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care about us? Because that's what they assume. Because Jesus is not participating in their anxiety and their worry and their frenzy, they assume that means Jesus does not care 
about them. He's not paying attention to them. And we do that sometimes too, right? When you're in a moment where you're in the middle of the storm, or you're feeling exposed, vulnerable, if you've ever felt like your ship is going down, it's very easy in those moments for our faith to kind of cry out, God, where are you? Don't you see what I'm going through? Aren't you paying attention? Don't you care if I drown? We interpret God's lack of visible activity in that moment as indifference to whatever we may be going through. But of course, that couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus was not indifferent. In fact, Jesus led them into the storm. He wasn't unaware of it. He led them into it. Go back to the very first verse of the passage. It says, Jesus got into the boat and the disciples followed, right? Like he's the one who led them there. And you go back three verses prior to that, Monica didn't read this verse, but Jesus saw the crowd around him. He was tired and he said to the disciples, let's cross over to the other side. Like it was his idea in the very beginning. Now this is a significant you know, verse for a handful of reasons. One, when, when Jesus said, let's go over to the other side, you have to understand how the Sea of Galilee was kind of laid out. They were, at the time, they were near Capernaum, their home. They were in the Jewish side, because there was definitely different sides, you know, uh, you know, a Jewish side and a Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. And they were near their home. They were in familiar territory with people and customs they knew. And Jesus said, hey, let's leave this side and let's go to the other shore, the other side, the place that you don't know, the unfamiliar territory. And not only that, this is kind of the two, is is the, the fishing boats of those days were not really made to cross all the way across the Sea of Galilee. The, the fishing boats were designed, it was their usual practice, just to push out from shore a little distance where they could catch the fish. They weren't you know, used to navigating the deeper water. So Jesus calls his disciples. He leads them into deeper, unfamiliar waters because that's what Jesus does. He takes his disciples, he takes us into deeper, unfamiliar waters. And Jesus knew a storm was coming. Surely the one who had authority over the storm knew the storm was coming. But he took the disciples there for a reason, because he wanted to teach them something about who he was. He wanted them to understand that he was the one who had authority over the storm. He wanted them to learn to trust him. And so when they woke him up and cried out for help, Jesus got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves and it was calm. Now, I don't know what that, that word rebuke to me is interesting It's the same word that Matthew's gospel uses whenever Jesus casts out evil spirits. He rebukes them and they leave. So I don't picture it quite like Isaac did in the children's moment that Jesus said, hush, hush. I I picture it a little more sternly than that. You know, Mark's gospel has quiet, be still. The word that kind of came to me, because Matthew doesn't record Jesus's words. So the word that came to me is I thought, you know, when I kind of reached my limit when I was a parent, or when my kids were pushing their limit, my word was always enough. That's enough. 
You've reached your limit. I've reached my limit. Enough. As the one in authority over you, I'm telling you, you're done. And I could see Jesus saying, enough, storm. Enough. You're through. Now, as I said, Matthew doesn't record what Jesus actually says, what word he speaks. What Matthew does record is the word that Jesus speaks to the disciples. And it's not necessarily a rebuke, but at least a question. And maybe a little sting to it. Jesus says to them, O ye of little faith, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Now on the surface of it, the disciples had an easy answer. We were afraid because that was a big storm. We were afraid because you took us out of the middle of the lake and you were not paying attention to us. We were afraid because we thought we were going to drown. We thought we were going down, Jesus. They had ample reason to be afraid, but it's the first part of that sentence that's the key. O ye of little faith. Because Jesus identifies for them the problem. The problem was not the size of the storm. The problem was the size of your faith. Have you not learned? I mean, we've been around the block here, disciples. You've seen me cast out demons. You've seen me heal people. You've seen me. Have you not learned who I am yet? Do you not know that I care about you? Do you not know that I have power even, even still over the wind and the waves. Don't you trust me, oh, ye of little faith? That's what Jesus is getting at. You see, the thing about this is the disciples were in the safest place they could be. They didn't feel that way. They felt exposed, vulnerable, panicked. But they were in the safest place they could be because they were in the boat with Jesus. They were with the one who had authority over the wind and the waves that were giving them such fear, right? I would take a moment, just reflect on that word authority because that's what the disciples reflect on. They say, who is this who even has authority over the wind and the waves? So what is authority about? I'm deeply indebted to the work of Ron Heifetz, wrote a book called Leadership without easy answers, because he is it's a wonderful treatise on the nature of authority. He says, at, this, at its core, authority is the ability to both command and direct attention. That's what a leader has who has authority, the ability to both command and direct your attention. Researchers studied authority. You know, it's, it's kind of hardwired into us as primates. You can, you can see it even in like guerrilla troops, for instance. In a guerrilla troop, you know, we all know this, there is an alpha male, the one who is in authority over the troop. And what research have, have been able to see is they track how often the eyes of the guerrilla troop go to the alpha versus going to each other. Throughout the day, all the time, the members of the guerrilla troop, their eyes are going to the alpha. They're checking in with him because the, you know, his behavior gives them cues for their lives. Based on the alpha's behavior, they know whether it's time to rest and relax, whether it's time to get ready to move, or whether it's time to prepare for some kind of imminent threat. Their eyes, their attention is always going to the alpha. And as I said, this is hardwired into us as human beings. 
because we can track it as early as like preschool classrooms. In preschool classrooms, there is an alpha. We don't like to admit it, but there is a, an alpha. It's always a boy, sometimes it's a girl, but there's usually a child who has kind of risen. To that. And how do we know it? Because researchers have tracked it. And they say children's eyes track the alpha. Who is the alpha? It's wherever the children's eyes go. Whenever they spread out into their stations, they're all doing kind of their independent thing. They, the kids will watch and they'll track where the alpha is moving to know, is it okay where I'm at? Do I need to move to another station? Do I need to respond? The kids track an alpha and not just the other kids, but especially in a classroom, the alpha is the teacher. So kids are always looking to the adult in the room whether it's a parent or a grandparent, an uncle or an aunt or a teacher or a coach, because that alpha gives them security and gives them cues that helps direct their attention to whatever the next thing is supposed to be. Now, what does a good leader do with this ability to command attention? Well, a good leader doesn't focus the attention on themselves, a good leader focuses the attention on whatever the problem is that is ahead of you. You know, whatever it is that needs to be done. There's this famous story about uh, uh, Joe Montana, quarterback of the 49ers in Super Bowl 23. Some of you may know this story. Uh, so it, Super Bowl 23 between the 49ers and Bengals, it was a hard fought defensive battle. And in the fourth quarter, the score was 16-13. The Niners were down by a field goal when they got the ball with four minutes left on their own eight-yard line. They were deep in their own territory, like eight-yard line, 92 yards away from the other end zone. And it was late in the game. There were only four minutes left. And such was the situation where this was likely their last possession. If they punted the ball, if they gave the ball back to Cincinnati at this point, Cincinnati would likely run out the clock. And so the, all the players got into the huddle and this is, like I said, a high pressure moment. And all eyes in that huddle were on Joe Montana. And you know what he did? He said to the guys, hey, is that John Candy over there? Literally what he did. He pointed out John Candy in the stands. Is that John Candy over there? Now, did he want their attention on John Candy? No. But what he didn't want was he didn't want their attention on the clock. He didn't want their attention on the scoreboard. He didn't want their attention on the pressure of the moment. He was communicating to, their, to those guys that moment, hey, I got you. Don't worry. Whatever anxiety, fear you have, let it go. Trust me and just focus on this next play. And then the play after that and the play after that, I will hold you and I'll guide us down the field. And sure enough, with 30 seconds left, Joe Montana threw game-winning touchdown to John Taylor and uh, the Niners won 2013. Sorry to any Bengals fans in the, in the room for peeling a scab off a wound here. But anyways, uh, he went on to win. And here's the key, and that's why we call him Joe Cool, right? You know, because he was cool under pressure. But here's what, I want you to see what Joe Montana did. He did what Ron Heifetz, he created what Ron Heifetz calls a holding environment. In moments of high anxiety, when we're in the middle of the storm, it is our natural response to look to the alpha, to look to the leader, and to give them whatever our anxieties are. 
our fears and anxieties and to, and, and what we're wanting from the alphas, we're wanting a sense of security. And, and in fact, probably what we're wanting from the alpha or the leaders, we're wanting them to fix whatever the problem is. Sometimes though, the leader can't fix it because it's not the leader's problem. It's everyone's problem. It's a huge problem. What the leader can do is they can't fix the problem. What they can do is they can create a holding environment. They can hold the anxiety so that we don't descend into either frenzy or being frozen. And they can help direct our attention to the next productive step. Does that make sense? Heifetz gives the example of a doctor. Like when we go see a doctor, that's a moment of high anxiety. We're worried about what's taking place in our own body or the body of our loved one. We don't know what this means. And we go to a doctor because they're the expert. They're the person who knows everything. And so we come into that meeting with a lot of anxiety. And a good doctor, what they will do is they'll create a holding environment. They may not be able to fix the problem. It may not have an easy fix. But a good doctor will hold the anxiety. You know, they don't, they don't pretend to be God. They don't pretend to have answers they don't have. They don't pretend to, they don't make promises that they can't keep, but they hold the anxiety and they help us identify, here's the next step. We're gonna run this test. We're gonna do this treatment. You're gonna make this lifestyle change. We will get through this together. And here's the promise that not just a good doctor, but a good therapist, a good coach, a good supervisor, a good teammate, a good friend, a good parent, this is, the, this is the promise a person in authority can say to another who's going through a time of storms. They can say, I will walk this journey with you and I will keep my eyes on you. You'll never be outside of my attention. And I promise I will help you the best of my ability direct your attention to the next productive step, the next step in this journey and I will take it with you all the way through. That's what a good, that, that is a good and faithful use of authority. And so Jesus is the one who has authority, authority to teach, authority to heal, authority to cast out demons, authority to calm the storm. He is the one in authority and we come to him when we are in a position of, I, we feel like our boat is going down and we say, Jesus, save us, we're going to drown. And sometimes Jesus calms the storm and sometimes he doesn't because sometimes he let us into the storm because there's something we need to learn in the storm. But what Jesus does do is he makes this promise I am with you in the storm. And you are never outside of my vision, my attention, my care and love and concern. And I will walk with you every step of the way. I will guide you and protect you. I will direct your attention to the next step you need to make with me on this journey we're taking together. That's the promise Jesus speaks to over us. He says, quiet, be still. That's enough to the frenzy that we feel in our hearts so that we can, so that we can take the next step in our lives.
You wanna know how Jamelin got out of that predicament in the tornado or the aftermath of the tornado? So she called me and there is panic in her voice. I can hear it. I can feel it even though I'm 10 miles away or seven miles away. The problem was I was completely helpless in a closet with my young daughter. I was completely helpless to do anything. I didn't know where she was. I didn't know what it looked like. I could, you know, the only thing I could do was like, like breathing exercise, like just breathe, Jalen, just breathe. You know, like, like that was really, you know, helpful. And anyways, but I was trying to do that, like, like, come on. Like, I, I mean, I couldn't explain how to like get out of this. Anyway, so I was like, breathe, breathe. And while I'm trying to calm her down, she gets a knock on the side of the car door. And it was a sheriff officer uh, who happened to live near that spot where Jamelin was stuck. And he saw her car from the window of his house. He saw that she was stuck and he came out to her. And he knocked on the window and Jamelin rolled down the window. And she, she, this is the way she remembers the sheriff's words. The sheriff said to her first words were, well, you're in a pickle, aren't you? <laughs> you're in a pickle. But then he said, I tell you what, listen to me, I'll guide and direct you out of here. And you know what Jane said? She said, I appreciate that. But what I really want is, do you mind just getting in the driver's seat and driving me out? And so seven months pregnant, she climbed out, you know, somehow shifted from the driver's seat to the passenger seat. And the sheriff officer sat down and he drove the rest of the way, got her through to the other side. And then she took over from there and drew the last, uh, drove the last few miles home. My point is this, it makes all the difference when the one who has authority is in the boat or in the car with you. And if you know that Jesus is with you, you know, you have little faith. Why are you afraid? And I hope whatever storm of life you might be experiencing right now, that you might be able to hand that over to him and to trust Jesus to guide, protect, lead you through it so that when you get to the end of that storm, you can, like the disciples, we all will be able to say, wow, surely this man is the son of of God. And may his praise and worship be ever upon our lips for his amazing faithfulness, care, and authority over us. And the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We join me in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, we recognize that you are the one who is in authority. And all of us today are here because we have given you authority of our lives. We have asked you to be our Lord and our Savior. We've invited you into our hearts. But even though you're in the boat with us, we still get afraid, God. We still worry about the future. We still worry about what the storm may bring. But the storm is bigger than us, God. But it is not bigger than you. So help us, God, each and every one of us to trust in you. Speak over our spirits a word of rebuke, 
a word of calm. Calm us down, settle us down to trust in you, even in the middle of the storm. This we pray in Christ's name.